You're tuning in to Missouri NEA Connects, a podcast to focus on all things Missouri education, from policy to practice, so that each of us can unite, inspire, and lead from where we are. We're happy you're here. Why don't we start with just kind of a time check? Yeah, yeah. How far into the session are we? I know it's a very short amount of time. Uh, but also how much time do we have left because we are in a leap year. So it's a little different. Yeah, it's a little bit different. So this is the, you know, I live, I kind of mark my time through the legislative session by weeks. And so if you'll see my updates, it's always like week one, number one, two, three, or whatever. So this is week, we're just about to start week three. So we haven't gotten very far into the session yet. The, um, previous week was a little funky because they were they were nervous about the weather Mm -hmm. like going into the week so like i had heard rumors that the house was planning technical sessions and they ended up doing a technical session on thursday so they they left on wednesday Mm -hmm. Um, and then the the senate was a little behind because the senate um they now call themselves the freedom caucus they used to call themselves the conservative caucus but they were getting up um, and like just kind of filibustering announcements or whatever on the Senate side. And so Cindy O'Loughlin couldn't get to like the part of the order of business where they send bills to committee. It's called second reading. Mm-hmm. And so she just broke in on them and, and made a motion to adjourn to end the week. So they were kind of behind last week, but they made up for it and they ended up scrambling to, to have an education hearing, not on the normal time of Wednesday, but on or Tuesday, sorry, but on Wednesday. And they're doing that again this week, but this time it's the holiday kind of getting mm-hmm. it because it's supposed to meet Tuesday at 8, but no one was going to be there at eight, 8 o'clock this morning when they were off yesterday. Right. They don't even go into session till 4. There's like a hearing at noon. There's some hearings at noon. There's some hearings at 2 today. So anyway, this is the third week, and we'll have, because of the leap day and the leap, year instead of the usual 18 session weeks we'll have 19 session weeks right which doesn't count the one week of spring break they throw in in the middle of march uh so we have an extra week so it's a it's a it's like a, we started a little earlier um than usual in in that it's the earliest possible day it's the third of january is when we started okay so that's kind of where we are we're just about to do the third week we had a couple committee hearings last week we'll have a bunch of committee hearings this week and that's pretty much what's going on right now in terms of business because the process requires that stuff get introduced, sent to committee, heard in committee, and then voted out of committee. And they usually, you know, like if they hear it one week, they would rarely take it up for passage in the committee that same week. They use the week, at least one week to vote on bills. Okay. Um, But on the other hand, if it's something they like heard and they heard it last year and it got voted out of committee and they hear it this year, you can pretty much bet the next week they'll just go ahead and vote on it. And it probably won't be like a big deal process. Like they'll just kind of bring it up. There might be a tweak to it and then they'll just vote. Um, So we're going to see some bills moving out of committee. That means they can get through uh, either just being turned in on the Senate side or through what's known as a rules committee, which is kind of the gatekeeper committee. And then you can start to see bills showing up on the calendar, at which point they will actually start within the next week or so. They're going to have kept bills on the calendar, 
where they could actually be spending all the time debating bills on the floor. Okay. So I was curious, what do you, what is the tone that has been set so far? Yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's still kind of too early to tell. You're going to have to see because there are big things that like are like, and it's not, this isn't unusual. You know, like a couple of years back, I was saying, well, I got some, you know, like they had to deal with redistricting one session and that just kind of, you know, interfered with other things going on. So that was a couple right. years ago. So now they have to, the kind of the big thing on the Senate side is what's called the Federal Reimbursement Allowance or FRA. Mm -hmm. It's not an education issue at all. Uh, on the other hand, it, it's an important issue for the state. It's like a it's a it's a thing that the federal law and regulations allow for healthcare providers and similar providers of services mm -hmm. to essentially tax themselves. That money comes to the state, and then the the state can use that money as matching yeah. money for a whole lot of federal money that helps fund the kind of the healthcare part of the state budget with okay. federal money. So it's a big deal budgetarily. Mm. Um, and for whatever, probably political reason, they don't just like say that's a permanent feature of Missouri law. They always have to reauthorize it. Right. Okay. So, which I think is like whoever, whoever wants to grumble about it, wants to be able to grumble about it with the, oh, I have to, you know, get an extension through the legislature to give them an opportunity to see what they can negotiate. So it's. In that sense, maybe it's a little bit like collective bargaining, where you have to come mm. back to the table every couple of years. Mm. Uh, so that's a big thing, and that you know, the typically because of the the rules and the option for filibuster and extended debate, it's typically the challenge to get that through the state senate. Um, okay. Typically, you know, if the house leadership is kind of on board, um, you know, things that are supported by house leadership move through the house because it doesn't have that kind of a feature in its rules and process. Okay. So anyway, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of an essential component of the first half of the session is that the Senate has to make progress on that. And I think the Senate Appropriations Committee, I didn't really put it in the updates because it's not exactly, like I say, an education issue, but I'm pretty sure right. Senate Appropriations Committee plans to be hearing that bill and that topic uh, this week. And so, okay. you know, they're, they're, they're moving on that as we speak. Um, having said that, you know, there's probably going to be some degree of leveraging or negotiation. I think we can also say that there's probably people who are saying, well, if you guys, and then fill in the blank on, uh, things they might want in education, if you do this, then we'll be willing to let you do that. Right. And so I think we see on the Senate side last week, there were several different, um, what you might call tax credit style voucher bills mm -hmm. being heard in committee. Uh, right. Uh, both of them. And this was kind of a byproduct of the hindrance that was done to getting bills sent to committee that kind of had to go with what was filed super early, uh, and Andrew Koenig has some seniority because he's been around for a while. So he gets to file fairly early in the process of pre-filing Senate bills. And he had a bill that was like an expansion of the existing 
what they call e it's not really an education savings account but it's um it's that kind of a, a an account where there was like a you know kind of a shell game between third party donors that give to um these entities that can give tax credits right and so then that, that for them it's really transactional because they can like take money off their taxes without any percentage that the you know, it's just it's just an uh, a, a, an exchange essentially to get the money into these accounts and then they use the process to decide who they want to give scholarships to okay so the, and then the state is kind of out the money that was given in tax credits to these donors and so that's, it's kind of a way to get around, you know, it's, it's like a, it's like a, like a play where you run the back around the edge, you know, to, mm -hmm. you know, to get around the, the obstacle of the constitutional uh, objection to having public money going to private schools. And money so, laundering. yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of like that. Yeah. So, um, so there was that one, which was, I believe 727 and then 729 was more of kind of like a straightforward we used to see income tax deductions proposed kind of like this now it's actually a tax credit so whatever a parent spends up to the base per pupil amount what we call the state adequacy target on their mm -hmm. kids private or homeschool tuition uh or expenses would be deductible as a tax credit so you know whatever you're spending that just comes off and so that would be reducing the state revenues by the, that exact dollar amount. Right. Um, and the way he had it worded was kind of interesting and troubling because it did that. It specifically said, but we won't let, like if public school parents have expenses, like for activities or whatever, that's not part of the thing. Right. You have to have your kid at a private school to get any any tax credit for any of the things you spend uh, on education. Uh, also, it also reduced the Prop C money coming, like for each kid that would be doing this, that would be reducing the Prop C money for the district where that kid lives. So if you had some private school kid, mm -hmm. um, and then suddenly they're taking this deduction up to the SAT amount of 6375, and it's going to go up uh, to over 7,000 over the next two years. The school district would be losing its Prop C money in like amount, even though you know this the school is getting its Prop C money based upon the the kids that are attending, um, and it's getting money out of that state appropriation each year to the tune of about a thousand bucks per kid. Mm -hmm. So for each kid who is at a private school doing this thing, the district would be losing the Prop C money for basically seven kids. Mm. Uh, so that's that's probably a very troubling feature. And the, when you looked at the fiscal analysis, it said both the state revenues and Prop C stood to lose between like 800 million plus to 1.5 billion, depending upon participation. And so when I spoke in opposition to the bill, I said, you might as well just call this no teacher left behind because there's so much money being lost. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, but it's clear given that the first hearing, those were like two out of the, I think there were three bills heard that week. So clearly that topic is a priority. It's also clearly a topic of priority because the House created a special committee called the Committee on Education Reform. 
which has membership that primarily is all, you know, people who have kind of indicated that they're very supportive of this sort of a privatization thing, a tax credit style voucher. So I think the thought is that if the Senate passes something, then that would be the committee that would take it because it would be, you know, if it went to the elementary and secondary education committee, it probably gets through, but I mean, there's going to be a much more robust conversation. The votes are much more mixed there, you know, because it's got a lot of people, Republican and Democrat, who've been in public education. So it's a much more, it would be much more lively and interesting, the conversation in that committee. Whereas if it comes to this new, newly manufactured uh, select committee where the speaker picked everybody on both sides, um, that's kind of handpicked to make sure that whatever comes over there sails right through committee. Question. Yeah. Does that Education Reform Committee have, like you just mentioned, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education Committee has former educators. Uh-huh. Does this new Education Reform Committee have former educators in the same capacity that the existing one does? No, it's, I think there's, I'd have to look back. The committee hasn't done much yet, but... Um... But yeah, knowing who is appointed to it, it doesn't have the same percent like percentage. It's just like a couple people have some some interaction with public schools, whereas most don't. So it's it's a different committee for sure. Okay. And actually, so the other thing that I guess maybe we would say looks to be of some relevance is charter school expansion, mm-hmm. because that committee is actually hearing this week multiple bills on that topic. I just saw something about that on my Facebook feed. One of them, uh, so the the bills basically go into the statute and where it specifies what school districts, somebody else other than the locally elected school board can make a decision about charter schools in that region, which is the, you know, the most fundamentally troubling thing about the yeah. charter school law as it stands, because, you know, the the one entity you can be sure kind of pulls together and has the the overall you know responsibility for the community, its students, and the resources it has and the schools that it has. It's that school board. For sure. And so to take that judgment away and say, oh, some other entity that doesn't have that that accountability, that and that information and that mm-hmm. process. And say that other entity can sponsor charter schools, typically like a higher ed institution or the charter commission, which was created to sponsor charter schools when higher ed institutions thought, ah, that's actually not such a good idea. And so mm-hmm. one bill would add that to St. Charles County school districts. Mm-hmm. One bill would add it to St. Louis County school districts. And one bill would add it to Columbia Public Schools only. Yeah. So that's going to, that's, those are going to be heard in that committee, the education reform committee on the house side. How did they come to those locations? Do you know? Like um, those specific St. Charles, St. Louis County and CPS. Well, so the one for CPS is sponsored by Sheree Tolson Reich. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah, I saw that. I don't recall off the top of my head, whether her district overlaps with any piece of Columbia public schools. It might. But, you know, she's on the committee and she's kind of been a, kind of an outspoken critic. She works in Columbia, mm-hmm. um, has been kind of an outspoken critic of some of the things that CPS has done. And so 
I think this is kind of her expressing, you know, uh, uh, this is my remedy for what I don't like about what CPS has done. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other two, the person sponsoring the bill and forgive me, I just don't remember off the top of my head, right. both of them, That's okay. but the sponsors are both representing districts located in those respective counties. Okay. So that's also going to get some attention. Um, yeah. And then there's, so like tomorrow, the Senate Education Committee is going to meet again. And another bill that will get some attention, if you remember last year, the big thing on the Senate side on education was they wanted to do the CRT and Parents' Bill of Rights stuff. Mm -hmm. So there's a bill, and this one is 728, Senate Bill 728, also Andrew Koenig. Okay. It really just has two pieces. The one is a relatively limited version of what was going around last session with regard to parent access to information. You know, it doesn't really do much in terms of like changing the law. It just kind of pulls a bunch of relevant provisions and restates them in one place. Okay. Um, so, you know, there, that's probably a political statement as much as a substantive policy statement and the other yeah. part is clearly as much a political statement as a substantive statement and that's the we saw some people have referred to it as kind of the don't say gay bill but it's it's a little bit different from that in that it's basically putting in the way he's written it it has some really objectionable language that's going to put teachers um at risk in terms of being in violation of statute, being in violation of child abuse and neglect statute, losing their livelihood as a teacher, maybe even being sued and losing money. Okay, oh so it's God. got ridiculous penalties. Yeah. It's so the sort of thing you we've seen pass in a couple of other states that is yeah. in, and the the thing it addresses is basically if a student expresses any like doubt or questions or thoughts about their identity, whatever, the teacher has to immediately report that back to the parent within 24 hours. Oh, God. Right. And so, you know, it kind of trounces on the whole, you know, right now for decades, we have relied on clergy, on healthcare professionals, nurses, and teachers, um, and, and others to be mandatory reporters of child abuse or neglect. It's right. a statute. It's a requirement of that kind of work. Yeah. And failure to, to you know, use proper professional judgment and report just, when you really legitimately believe there's abuse or neglect, uh, you have to report. It's a class A misdemeanor for which you could go to jail for a year to fail to do that. Yeah. It's a, it's a serious part of the yeah. duty of being a professional teacher. Mm -hmm. Well, a part of that duty is sometimes to hotline a parent or other person because of what they are concerned about is happening to the child. Yep. And another part of that is to be mindful of what happens or what they do and how that might impact what happens to the child when they go home. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there may, you know, the parent and the child may already be well known enough to the teacher that he or she is like, I, you know, I know that it's going to be a problem. Like the safety of this child is going to be at risk because I do what the law says and tell the parent this. Yeah. So that you, it's easy to anticipate that, you know, a legally 
wise teacher would put up a sign behind them in the classroom that says, don't tell me anything mm -hmm. because I am legally required to rat you out to your parents within 24 hours. Okay. Yeah. Now, of course, that's horrible because it means what it does is it shuts down the ability for the teacher to be an empowered adult that can be helpful to the student. Yeah. But it also then, what if the student ignores that advice and shares something that yeah. the teacher knows is going to get this kid hurt when they go home? Because they are going to have to tell the, the parent about something that that or the, the boyfriend or whatever yeah. has attitudes and it's just not going to be a safe circumstance. So which statute does the teacher comply with? And then if there's the AG and parents can sue over this stuff. And the if there's a violation, the district is supposed to try to take away your certificate. So again, it's kind of like no ch teacher left behind because anybody who sees that, if it were to become law, um, yeah, it, you know, it's really going to have a chilling effect on anybody wanting to be in the classroom for sure. Right. This mm. didn't have a good reception. A very similar bill was heard in the house in, in the education committee and got nowhere. Um, okay. it just had a really tough time in the hearing. The committee was just not buying it. Yeah. Um, there was a bill last session, Senate bill 134 by Mike Moon got out of committee and it got turned essentially by Senator Koenig as committee chair into this sort of language from yeah. a slightly terser version um, as a Senate committee substitute. But then I don't think that bill ever really went anywhere either. It got, I'm not sure if it got turned in, but I know that it wasn't debated on the floor. Okay. So it's going to be interesting to see and obviously we'll be expressing our concerns. I think there's going to be a lot of concern about that piece of it, not so much the, the other part because it's not really that much new law as it relates to the parent act information access. So that's going to be interesting uh, to see how that moves through committee. But clearly, you know, this being the second week that they're hearing bills, that's, uh, you know, of interest enough to make the, the cut for the second round after the tax credit vouchers last week. One more bill. This okay. is actually some good news. Senate Bill 814 okay. is, Senate bill, is the bill filed by Senator Jill Carter. Okay. Um, so she and State Representative Paula Brown, our longtime member, have both been working together on a project that's really trying to... Uh, improve, kind of get us out of this habit of overusing standardized testing to the detriment of instruction, to the detriment of how schools run. Right. And so it's really trying to pare down the use of the, of the federally required testing. Uh, mm -hmm. the, 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 the map test should be as compact of a test, have the least possible footprint on instruction. Right. And only be used for the federal purposes, which is, you know, you identify schools for comprehensive, you know, school-wide or targeted improvement. And then use the Turnaround Act that we passed back in 2018 as the mechanism by which we appropriate funds, bring in basically teacher helpers to come in and support teachers and try to improve practice in the identified schools. And so... Right. Meanwhile, there's the, the kind of this old school notion of accreditation. Um, 
still hangs out in some statutes in some states. Missouri is kind of kind of archaic in that we actually have, we call it accreditation, but really it's an accountability provision at the district level. And that's kind of like out of sync with modern policy. The yeah. federal thing just wants you to identify and support schools, mm-hmm. right? And so we're trying to clear clear the, the garbage out of the way, so to speak, right? by changing accreditation. Uh, we were thinking about just getting rid of it, and a lot of legislators would just as soon get rid of it. That's legislatively complicated. It's used in a lot of places. So maybe even though better than just reflexively getting rid of it is to look at what has accreditation in the more modern era become. And in the conversations that we and Senator Carter and Representative Paula Brown and and, uh, others have had with accreditation agencies like Cognia, Mm -hmm. they've They've really been trying to inspire states to look at a different approach. The, they would argue that North Dakota is really the first one to kind of really get out there into a, just a different way of thinking about how could accreditation be useful. Mm-hmm. And the way of thinking is it's no longer, oh, accreditation is an accountability thing tied to status. When we deal with status and growth, we're looking at identifying schools for support and improvement with the federal model. When we're talking about accreditation, that's just what they like to use. Their fancy term is it's an authentic process of continuous improvement. So mm-hmm. accredit, being accredited is, is, a simply, is essentially acting in good faith, participating and like working the plan of being in that process because they mm-hmm. help you. They come in and help you assess how you're doing, your strengths, your weaknesses, a list of things you can work on that is kind of like what should you be working on. And so... In North Dakota, accreditation means to be engaged in an authentic process of continuous improvement. And that's actually probably a sensible thing to do with accreditation because it means that rather than just saying, well, let's just get rid of it, and all we're going to ever do is talk about schools at the lower end of performance, Mm -hmm. this afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted, Mm. right? Because this process of continuous improvement it's going to show, you know, we already know if you're, if you have students that are struggling, you, you know, we've already been targeting you for, you know, help and resources and the accreditation process will probably just be a, a better roadmap for yeah. what, what are the most urgent things to be working on. But what if you don't, you're not in that category, your, your students are scoring higher enough that they're not so identified. Well, if you have to be a part of an authentic process of continuous improvement, You've still got stuff to do. It's just going to be different stuff. Right. And so everybody will have, you know, kind of an, an orientation towards improving. Uh, and we've we've been including uh, Senator Esslinger, who has been selected to be the new commissioner. Yeah. In some of these conversations. And she, I think, is very enthusiastic about pursuing, you know, can this be a part of this mix? So we're going to, anyway, we're going to have a hearing on Senate Bill 814 tomorrow also. Nice. What time? The hearing starts at uh, 1 o'clock. Okay. I'll tune in on that one. It's very interesting to me. does impact my world a lot. So, For sure. Yes. So I would definitely like to hear thoughts on that and any movement. So that's um, kind of, that's kind of, you know, I think, I think we already can see, even though it's only week three, I think we can already see, uh, that that's the uh, 
some of the main things that we're going to see moving in the education realm. Oh, oh, I, I, I forgot one more. Oh, yeah, tell us, tell us, tell oh, us. Of course. Um, so the other one, of course, is <laughs> open enrollment. Oh, yeah. I was wondering when that was going to come up or if that was already so done. That was already heard last week. I'm sure it's um, it'll be voted out this week, we would assume. That's Sen uh, Representative Brad Pollitt. He, it's his bill, his committee, elementary and secondary education. This is the fourth year he's had it. Um, and we have uh, been in conversation with him the whole time. And so we, right. you know, we, we, already, we always knew that bill could be a problem. When you yeah. look, a lot of states have an open enrollment provision, depending upon like how much the system relies upon state funding. The more state mm -hmm. funding you have, um, generally the easier it is to to ease those transitional issues of kids moving between districts. Especially if you provide, for example, special education through services education. on an intermediate level through like a special district or an area agency. Mm -hmm. um, or, a, or on a big countywide basis, like Maryland only has 19 counties and they do schooling on a countywide basis. Right. Um, so I, I, I hit Representative Paul had come to us four years, three and a half years ago, and I told him, you know, Missouri's not the easiest state to do that because we're so focused on local funding. Buildings mm -hmm. are 100% locally funded. We do special ed mostly on our own, except for a couple special districts. Right. So we've been in conversation with him, and the bill had some features that we had recommended to him. And so then the, the day before the hearing last week, he let me know that there, so there's this new thing on the House side called the Policy Development Caucus. It's not a committee. Um, Interesting. But it is a caucus of the Republicans. It's 30 Republicans. If at least two-thirds of that caucus are okay with a substantive bill, and issue, then it becomes anointed as something that will be allowed to come to the floor. And essentially what we're told is not be subject to amendment. It has to be done their way and then it's not subject to amendment. So almost it's like they're turning substantive bills into what might otherwise be treated as a what's called a consent bill, which is a bill so small and straightforward and obvious that there would be no reason to amend it. I mean, so this is obviously, you know, open enrollment opinions could vary. People might want yeah. to amend it, but you know, this caucus is basically going to say it has our stamp. Well, so Representative Paul let me know that that committee had said, well, we would do that with your bill, but you have to take out this feature you've always had, which says that there's some kind of um, either restriction or evaluation of the potential that these open enrollment programs have to resegregate. Uh, mm -hmm. The canonical example is the Twin Cities, Minneapolis uh, and St. Paul. Mm -hmm. They have become, they have statewide open enrollment. They have charter schools kind of wherever throughout that region. Yeah. And they have completely and utterly resegregated. So they have basically Hispanic, black, white uh, parts of those that metropolitan area. They have completely resegregated by the combination of those two policies. Mm -hmm. So he had always had a feature to address that topic. In some cases, in the first couple of years, it was like, you know, we can do what Iowa did, which was you can't have transfers that kind of like increase the isolation, like operate on an individual student level. You can't have transfers that, that are tantamount to white flight, for example, or affluent uh, 
students leaving a high poverty district. Yeah. This year he had put in a feature that basically just said, we're going to slow the process down more if we start to see resegregation occur. And the, in their infinite wisdom, the Policy Development Caucus said, you got to take that out uh, for it to be an anointed you know, Policy Development Caucus thing. Is there a rationale behind why they would They apparently that? think that you know, the ability to, to slow down the fraction of students that can leave is, is tantamount to some kind of reverse discrimination. Now that's that's a, you know I I don't know who is suggesting that but the U.S. Department of Justice guidance and U.S. Supreme Court case law do say there is an interest of the state in avoiding having students in isolated settings whether it's by minority or race mm-hmm. um, and they don't have to pass open enrollment they don't have to have the three percent you know overall filter on how quickly students can leave. So they have a lot of discretion on how they do this. If you look at states all over the country, open enrollment looks different everywhere. Yeah. So it's pretty naive, but these are, what my understanding is, relatively new legislators who are attorneys, and so they think they know this stuff. So anyway, mm-hmm. uh, in, in their wisdom, they've told him, the guy who you know devoted his entire life to public education, uh, uh-huh. you can't have that in your bill. And so he, because he's like, that's the politics of the situation. So he agreed that he would take that out. And so we opposed his bill. For sure. Absolutely. So that, anyway, that's going to, that's going to be moving along. And then the question, you know, having been so chosen, seems like what that version will come to a final vote. And last year there were more than the 82 votes necessary. And it's roughly the same population of legislators. So pretty likely that it'll have enough to pass um, because it needs to have 82 out of 163. Then it gets to the Senate and there's probably going to be an effort um, to put back in features that, that restore that. Okay. Not that I would want that to move it at all, but... Our our resolution basically says that open enrollment can harm public education students if you don't have the necessary guardrails in how you start it up, how you implement it, how you monitor it. I just think the movement of that in Missouri is such a slippery slope. (laughs) Well, and it's like like I told Representative Pollitt three years ago, Missouri is not the easiest state to do this and do it well. And you know, they even even if they resolve that topic to a degree. We're still not anywhere close to where we ought to be as it relates to open enrollment and special education students. Yeah, no. Because he's got language in there that says basically, you know, say you wanted to go for some other reason. You have an IP. They look and say, well, we don't really have, you know, um, we would have to like, you know, spend money to meet the requirements of your IEP. They can turn you down just for that reason, which is kind of. That's repugnant to the you know federal law and the IDEA yeah. wants us to not create barriers for students because merely by the fact that they have the IEP. So that that needs work too. And that's actually something we're we're looking at, you know, what are the a part of the problem is just a lack of capacity, like mm-hmm. people yeah. with the appropriate, you know, training credentials. Being in region and in the various parts of the state, there's a lot of parents who don't know about their rights under IDA. There's a lot of school districts that struggle to understand what they should be doing. And if they understand, it doesn't make any sense for them to like have on staff the yeah. person they need like, you know, 20% of. 
mm-hmm. for that one kid this year. And so we're, we're looking at, you know, how are other states doing this better? Because in general, other states are doing better at having more access to special ed services throughout the state. Yeah, than Missouri yeah. is in its entirety. And that seems to be like an essential, if you really want to do open enrollment and be able to look yourself in the mirror, you've got to treat those kids fairly. Yeah, all kids, yep. Yep. And that's, de- I mean, that's totally in line with our resolution. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's, that's a, that's a bunch, isn't it? That's a lot for the first three <laughs> weeks, Otto. No wonder you're tired. Are there any opportunities for action from members or friends of public education in any of these at this time, other than maybe just contacting your representative this early in the process it's really you know it's kind of like people are just kind of well it's not so much that it's hard it's just that i don't know that i would necessarily think tell people you need to be thinking about you know hardcore advocacy on a particular topic okay this being the beginning of session this is really the better time to just kind of check in with folks okay contact your legislators or if there's somebody you have any former contact with who's like on the committees. Yeah. Because like the education people on both sides, generally they they kind of cut people some slack if they care about education, even if it's not their constituent. Right. But particularly if, you know, if you're their constituent or if you teach their constituents or like mm. you work you work in a school. So you have two two potential connections to a legislator. Either you're their constituent and you live there or you work in their okay. district. Either in of those. District. If you have either of those connections, this is a perfect time to just kind of check in with them, listen to what they're thinking about, and then let them know like what you're experiencing. Okay. Right? Because th- they can hear from me about our resolutions, about our ideas. Right. But for the best the best way for them to know about what's happening right now in the classroom is mm-hmm. to hear from the educators. Yeah. And just get a sense because, you know, we sometimes I'll, I'll be seeing these bills, you know, oh, it's such a priority that we do something about, um, you know, parent access to information or the you know, students in their, in their questioning about gender. And I'm thinking, you know, you guys have a, your first constitutional duty is to establish and maintain the public schools to sustain democracy. Mm-hmm. And right now we're having a real challenge at making that a place where qual- you know, truly qualified teachers want to stay. Yeah. That's what you should be worried about right now is mm-hmm. how do you have uh, sufficient resources for the number of you know, s- staff that our kids need? Yeah. Pay them a decent salary and have decent working conditions. Address concerns about pupil and, and educator safety. Right. You know, affect... Uh, do something positive on the ability to get standardized testing from having such a pernicious effect on instruction and, you know, kind of like stifling the opportunities for creativity. They're focused on changing up the layout of the house when they need to be checking the yeah. foundation. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Got it, working, got it. You know, what, what color are the shingles? <laughs> well, we have a foundation crack, so, and a yeah. leak. So let's yeah. take care of that first. All right. Um, so what's your hashtag for the 2024 <laughs> legislative session so far? You, you know, so far it's cold. Oh, hashtag cold. <laughs> oh my God, how poetic. 
like literally and figuratively. Well, I look forward to. I look forward to every month's update. This is it should be interesting. It's very fascinating. From where we are today, which is just kind of, you know, just getting started, a very cold, wintry day, a month from now, a lot's going to be moved further down the road. Hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Otto, as always. All right. It's been fun. <laughs>